All right, good morning. I have a confession to make. I am developing a bit of a bromance with Seth. <laughs> Way to stick with the theme every time. Something, something to do with romance. Uh, come to GC Friday nights, meet your Boaz. I think we have found our strap line, Seth. You're not, you're not listening. He's not listening, okay. <clears throat> We're gonna finish our sermon series in the book of Ruth this morning. So we've been working through it chapter by chapter and we're gonna finish this morning and then next week we'll begin, officially begin our season of Advent as we lead up to Christmas. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it, open it. We're gonna go to Ruth chapter four and uh, yeah, we're gonna finish off. So here we go. Ruth chapter four, um, we're going to begin in verse 9, and we'll read all the way to the end. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez was fathered, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. That is King David. Um, it sort of indicates to the reader about when this would have been written. Obviously, um, some generations had passed before the story was officially penned. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for just the joy it is to gather, to be your kids, um, and to get to know you better together. Lord, I pray that this morning you would help us and that as we look at this story once again, um, that we wouldn't just learn more about you, but that we would get closer to you. We would experience more of you. Lord, I pray that um, you would meet with us in a very personal way this morning so that when we leave here, our hearts would be um, renewed We'd have more joy and more peace having spent time um, in your presence together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ruth is the story of God's redemption. It's God's story of redemption. Um, began with Naomi, her husband Elimelech, and their two sons. Elimelech and their two boys they die. 
I'm not told how or why. We just know that this poor woman um, and her two daughter-in-laws are left to fend for themselves. Um, this is obviously written in a very ancient context. So even some of the language um, we, we read, Boaz bought Ruth. can be a bit difficult in our sort of modern way of thinking, but it's actually a rather beautiful story of um, yeah, God's people taking care of the widows and orphans, providing for those who were in need in that time. And, uh, but they, they lose their husbands, and uh, Naomi, who's an older woman at this point, basically releases her two daughters-in-law and says, Ruth, uh, we don't know the name of the other one. She says, look, just go. There's no hope left. I'm as good as dead. Go home to your, your families, and um, good luck. One of them leaves. Uh, Ruth does not. Ruth determines to remain with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Um, it's an incredible thing to do. What a, a brave thing. She becomes the faithful friend. Um, that's the book of Ruth. They move back to um, Naomi's homeland, where she's from. They return to eventually Bethlehem, and they end up meeting a man named Boaz. Ruth goes to work in some, you know, quote-unquote random field, and she meets Boaz. Boaz ends up being their kinsman redeemer, the next in line to provide for the widows and their family. And Boaz ends up being a solid man. Um, he's, a, he's a worthy man is the word that's described, used to describe him. It's also the word that's used to describe Ruth. Um, quality people, they get together, and um, as we read last week, Boaz ends up fulfilling his um, duty to redeem the family. He buys the land, he provides for Naomi, and he marries Ruth, um, and therefore it's a story of redemption. And like the literal sense, he is the kinsman redeemer. He redeems the family, and there's hope once again. So the book of Ruth isn't only the story of God's, the, the, the hope, sorry, it's not only God's story of redemption, it's also the story of hope renewed. It's a story of a woman, a couple of women, but it particularly the story opens with Naomi, who's lost everything. Probably a few in few of you in here have lost a loved one. Could you imagine losing a spouse um, or your two sons? Like that's, it's, it's easy just to kind of quickly read over it, but imagine, imagine being Naomi. You lose your husband and your two boys. Many people don't come back from that. That's, that's, that's the end. Maybe you get through life, but um, you probably are going to end up being a very lonely, hopeless, bitter person. And that's exactly where the story begins. Naomi says, I used to be a pleasant person. They used to call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. Bitter. God has judged me. There's no hope left. And now hope has returned. Hope has been restored. Naomi is given a chance to start again. So it's a story of hope restored. The bitter and empty woman named Naomi is blessed in her old age and full of hope once again for the future. God's story of redemption doesn't tell us why. Tragedy happens. Doesn't explain away the pain. Rather, it tells us the tale of hope restored. How does Naomi learn to hope again? How is uh, hope renewed? Anyone uh, ever wonder that? Like, how, when you've gotten to that place in life, and maybe bitterness is like the main emotion you feel oftentimes, Things haven't worked out. Maybe you are still mourning the loss of something that didn't work out. Maybe no one died, but loss nonetheless. And you still feel the sting of that event, that loss, that pain. 
How is hope renewed? How does one begin to hope again? Think about the future and begin to get excited for what could be. Look at that little newborn and think, man, maybe, maybe there is reason to hope again. Maybe the future might still be bright. How does one get there? How do you begin to hope again? Um, because if you have not figured it out yet, life can get pretty bumpy from time to time. You guys with me? Get hard. Get really hard, actually. Um, sometimes, depending upon the season, it can be harder at certain times than others. Um, especially when it's like the days get really, really dark. How is hope renewed? I want to break this into three parts. Number one, we begin by looking back. In verse 10, we read that uh, Boaz redeemed Naomi and Ruth. In verse 10, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and the gate of his native place. Hope renewed begins with the vindication of hope past. Those who have hoped before, those who died still hoping that the good may come. The vindication of hope gone by. There's no undoing the pain of grieving loss. Elimelech is still dead, but the hope that he once had is now being fulfilled in Obed. One of the reasons why we struggle to hope again is because we're still processing the pain of hope deferred gone by. Like, I have hoped, and those before me have hoped, and it didn't work out, and it didn't work out, and it didn't work out. And if I dare hope again, I need to first reconcile the reality of the pain of hope deferred in the past. It says in uh, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 13, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope by its nature is very risky. You know, you get your hopes up. Have you ever gotten your hopes up only to be let down? It could be something as trite as like the thing you really, really wanted for Christmas but didn't happen this year. Dare you hope again in years to come? What are you hoping for this year? Maybe this year it was a partner. You missed my confession, Seth. You were talking with Hillary. I've also developed a bit of a bromance with someone in the room. Did you hear that? Oh, okay, you're just choosing to ignore it. One of the things I love about you, Seth, since I put you on the spot already, is, um, yeah, you're, you're pretty honest. Pretty honest. Like, you'd love to meet someone someday. Um, you're certainly not desperate. Far, far from that. But just, like, really honest. Quite secure, actually. It's quite refreshing. Um, but, yeah, how many people in this room would love to, like, meet someone? Of course. I, I've been there. Um, reckon everyone is like dying to meet someone, but maybe a lot of us, lot, I shouldn't say us, I've moved on, <laughs> I found someone. <laughs> Hoping to meet someone, dare you hope again? Dare you hope again? Hope deferred can make the heart sick, can be get, start to get hard, can become embittered. In order to hope again, we need to allow God to vindicate the hope of those who have gone before us. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, um, there's, we actually, uh, Ben and I, we co-preached a series on the cloud of witnesses. This list of people in Hebrews 11 who all trusted God 
to, uh, to fulfill his promises. They had, he had made a promise to Abraham and others that he was going to um, bless them, give them a home, and through them bless the world. Quite a promise. And Abraham believed God. And others after him believed God. And it said that every one of them died before having received the promise. They died in faith, still hoping, still hoping, still believing, still seeing the unseen, trusting that God is faithful. And even if they have to wait postpartum, postmortem, <laughs> sorry, me, me trying to use fancy words. <laughs> What was I saying? <laughs> yeah, what do you do um, with those who hope themselves? Ellie Melick, I suspect he had dreams for his family. He moved his whole family to Moab to find food, to survive, to provide. I reckon he had some kind of dream for his family. Elimel died in hope. And in God's story of redemption, the hope of Elimelech is vindicated. Because along comes Obed. And now he gets to look at this child. And I imagine, because their blood, right, Boaz was like the cousin of Elimelech or something like that. They were family. And I imagine Naomi looking into the eyes of this little boy and seeing a little bit of her boys. And she gets to know in that moment that actually he didn't die in vain. Yeah, it hurt. And I'm still grieving the loss of my boys. That will always hurt. As a dad, I don't, I don't need to experience to know that that will always, always hurt. So it doesn't undo the tragedy doesn't undo the injustice, the pain. But now she gets to look into the eyes of that little boy and know like Elimelech did not die in vain. His hope is being fulfilled in this new family. The story of God's redemption vindicates the hope of the past. Um, I think a lot of times as a uh, a modern people, we do not know what to do with death. We've been conditioned not to think about it until we have to think about it, and then we don't know what to do with it. <clears throat> In God's story of redemption, he doesn't shy away from the pain of death. He redeems it. Um, that vindication sometimes takes a while. So we begin by looking back, um, but then, of course, ultimately, hope compels us to look forward. And in God's story of hope restored, the future is infused with new possibilities, the chance to begin afresh. And this one's kind of obvious. There's literally new life that's now uh, come into the story. Baby Obed, um, the future is still intact. There's reason to hope again. And he's alive and breathing. Um, by the way, this is our view from the cross. Jesus died on a cross. If you're not a Christian, allow me to explain it to you. Um, we were all born as broken people. Sinners is, is really the word. Uh, cursed. It's another way to put it. Um, our world's broken. It's just broken through and through. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. God's fingerprints are just all over creation. Our world is full of wonder and it's broken. People do die. Injustice is a part of our reality. And we're all born into it. And we're culpable. We're not merely victims we get to contribute to the mess. But God loves us. 
so much. He loves his creation. He loves the world so much that he came down. He came to us. Instead of looking down, commanding, demanding that we work our way up, God comes down and he suffers for us. He becomes a curse on our behalf so that we might become the children of God, that we might experience adoption into God's family. He welcomes us home. He invites us to turn, turn away from anything or anyone that we once trusted in, including our own willpower or know-how or morality or whatever else you want to come up with, to turn and to trust him, his goodness, his faithfulness, what he has accomplished for us on the cross. And we get to begin this whole life of just giving and receiving love or receiving and giving love. It's beautiful. It changes everything. Jesus invites us to take up our own cross, to die to ourselves, that we might receive more of his goodness, life with him. From the cross, we get this incredible view of, of redemption. Uh, hope in the past vindicated. All those who have gone before us, all those who are hoping that God was faithful and that he would make good on his promises. And even though they couldn't quite understand how God was going to do that, they knew he was faithful. They knew that he, was, he would be true to his word. And so they hoped and they hoped. And for generations, people hoped. And from the cross, we now look back and we can say hope has been vindicated. He's done it. He did it. He made a way where, where it seemed impossible God was faithful. Now the hope of the past has been vindicated. And then from the cross, we look ahead. What do we see? What do you see when you sort of, you know, have you ever been in a crowd and you become aware that everyone's looking at something, but you can't figure out what everyone's looking at? And so you're kind of like, what are we looking at? What's, what, what, are all, what are we all looking at? You know what I'm talking about? What do we see when we're looking from the cross into the future. What did Jesus see when he was suffering on the cross? We're told that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. Like Jesus, he, he was seeing something. And maybe no one else on planet Earth could see what he saw, but he was looking beyond. What do you see from the cross? New life, joy, resurrection. What do you see? It's a simple question and one that I reckon people have been like pondering for thousands of years. What are we hoping for? I have come to a place where I think whatever you're hoping for, it's not big enough, it's not good enough. It falls short. Um, part of us being like the people of God who gather and who worship, who pray, and we're, you know, we're, we do this, is that we can kind of encourage one another, like lift your eyes a little bit higher. I, I, I want to um, suggest that our view of God and his goodness, his faithfulness, it's always just a little bit too small. He's better than we can even like dream up or imagine. He's more faithful than we can ever um, even begin to fathom. Which is why when the scriptures begin to describe like life to come, it usually ends up getting super poetic. And it's like, it's, it's visions of heaven, like the unreal goodness that goes beyond words. And then some. That's hope renewed. Dare we hope again. 
Dare we hope again? So that's um, the vindication of hope gone by. Um, a vision for the future. What about now? What do we, what are we meant to do like now? Now, now. Because hope is, is actually, um, hope is not for the present. Hope is always uh, future-oriented. There's, there's those who have hoped, and then there's those who are hoping. But it's always, it's, it's what about now? What about now? We're told, in, uh, again, the book of Hebrews, that, that people don't hope for what they see. You don't, I don't hope that there's $350,000 in my bank account right now. Okay. Because there's not. Like, period. <laughs> I can wish for it. I can delude myself into believing it. But like, to say I'm hoping for that, that's, I can hope for it someday. Or maybe once upon a time I hoped for it. But, but now is different. The present is different. So what do we do now? And this is my favorite part of the story. Have I said that before? This is my favorite, favorite part of the story. Um, we're told that when Naomi finally holds her baby grandchild, Obed, that all the women in the neighborhood gathered and they named the boy, verse 17, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Any uh, grandmas in here? Any grandmas? You, I'm looking, thank you. <laughs> that was your moment, Regan. <laughs> when I watched my parents hold my children, Greg, little shout out, little love, Grandpa. When I watched my parents hold my babies for the very first time, I realized that they might love my kids as much as I do. Now, if you don't have kids yet, you're like, ah, so, okay, so what's your point? Okay, if you ever have kids, you'll get it, you'll get it. It's, it's a weird thing, honestly, to see other humans love my kids almost as much as I do. And so I imagine Naomi holding this little baby boy, knowing that it's not really her son, this is her grandchild. This is her baby boy. And so there's a, there's a very real bond between grandparents and their grandchildren. I haven't experienced it personally yet, but I, am I on the right track? Is this real? Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's, it's beautiful. So hope is the anticipation of good things to come. When Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap. In a moment, she began to hope again. The family line wasn't cut off. It wasn't over. The story had not ended. Hope was still intact. Um, but what about the present? The whole neighborhood takes part in naming the child. Obed. It means servant of God. All the women come together. How about that? What if we, um, what if when the next person, the next couple to have a baby in here, who's next? Who's pregnant right now? Okay, Josie. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put it out there. I'm just gonna pitch it. Okay, I'm just gonna put it out. Um, when you're ready to name your child, let's, let's take a survey. <laughs> and we'll all name your child together. You're nodding. Okay, you're... Okay, you're just being nice. <laughs> but how about that? The community gets to name the child. I think that's cool. I'd, it'd be hilarious to see what people came up with, and we could all vote. Obed, the servant of God. I wonder if the women in the neighborhood were praying, saying, Lord, uh, what's your vision for this child, for this baby boy? Who's he going to be? Who do you say he is? And they're praying, praying. 
And then one of the, the older ladies sensed the Spirit of God say, well, he is going to be the grandfather of one of the greatest servant kings Israel's ever had. Maybe we should just call him servant of God. And there was another even older lady who just spends all of her time praying. She's like, that's right, that's right. But my sense is that he's going to be the great, 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 great grandfather of the king of the universe. The servant king of the world. Yeah, let's call him Obed. Let's call him Obed. What would it look like for us to name the kids in our neighborhood? How about this community? You know, um, I was meeting with Adam and Rochelle last Saturday. So they lead our kids' ministry. We call it Kid City. It's mostly like little crawlers, little ones down in the nursery. But there's a few who are kind of like aged out of like the infant room. And they're mostly sitting right there. Um, and we've been dreaming and praying, Lord, what can we do to like serve like the kids in our church? And not just to like keep them occupied with something while we do grown-up stuff, but like how can we disciple like the little ones, the kids, the ones that Jesus actually always had time for, it would seem. What would it look like for us as a community to name our kids together? Like metaphorically speaking, I don't really think we should name the sailor's kid together. Like you guys, I'm sure you have a wonderful name picked out. But spiritually speaking, what would it look like if we all came together when it was time to begin hoping again? Nothing like a baby in the family to begin rekindling hope. What would it look like to name our children? Are you, guys, are you guys tracking with me? Like I'm speaking metaphorically, right? It's easy to um, sort of judge the world. Drive around Portland, point out all the things that are wrong with it. Like where, did, where does it begin? begins with people like losing their way as like little ones. That's where it happened to me. That's when I started like um, stealing, lying, getting high, just running amok. It's not because my parents are bad, but I really needed some people to come around me and, and help me like figure out who God says I am. It's like an identity thing. And so it's easy to kind of like point the finger and be like, man, someone should do something about those kids next door. You guys notice the kids next door? There's so many kids in this neighborhood, it's crazy. Like I'm always a little nervous that they're going to break a window, but so be it. Won't be the first time. But all these kids, I think about it every day. I've started like interacting with the kids next door. Like I talk to them. I know their names. I'm trying to like, and I'm always very awkward. I'm like, I'm like I get properly nervous around these kids. But I'm trying to like talk to these kids because I'm thinking, man, someone needs to name these kids. Now, not to say like they don't have decent parents who aren't doing their job, but I think the church's role is to come around like the next generation, the, the youngsters, or even just like adults who are clueless. Be like, hey, can I, can I take part in leading you to Jesus so that you can figure out who he says you are. Can I be a part of naming you, forming you, helping you, discipling you? Pick a word. What if we had a vision as a community to do that, starting right here with our kids? With my kids. Could use a hand. Sincerely. They're great. You guys are awesome. Okay, let's get practical. How do, how do we name a child? This is where we're going to end, Ruth. How do we name a child? Talking about hope, hope renewed, but what about right now? What about while we're waiting? While we're believing? What do we do now? We get to work. Um, in the book of Acts chapter 1, Jesus had just ascended into heaven. 
And we're told that as they were standing looking in the sky, because apparently Jesus had literally levitated, I guess, and like went up into the clouds. I don't, honestly, I don't know what to make of it. But Jesus went up into the clouds. We're told the disciples were just standing there staring up. And then two people, I think they were angels, appear standing next to them. And they say, why are you standing looking up? You know he's going to come back in the same way he left. I.e., what are you guys doing just standing around? He's coming back. Didn't he give you something to do in the meantime? Isn't there work to be done? In Genesis chapter 2, where the story begins, the man and the woman eventually were given a job to name all of the living creatures. It was, it was like their partnership with God to bring meaning and purpose and beauty and order and an otherwise unnamed world, a world without purpose, without beauty cultivated. It's our God-given responsibility to name, to bring uh, beauty, to direct, to speak identity over the people around us, particularly the little ones. How do we name a child? Number one, be present. Number two, be present. You want to guess what number three is? Number three, be present. It begins by just like being there. If you're off doing your own thing all the time and you really are too quote unquote busy to spend time with the people around you, especially the little ones, then I would say um, do something different. Change your priorities. Make some sacrifices. Repent. Be present. You're going to hope that someday, if you have kids of your own, or you adopt, or you're a foster child, or you just, you've got some little one that you really, really care about, you're going to hope that there's some people around you that can actually speak life into these young ones. And it won't just be you single-handedly trying to like raise up the next generation but you're going to have aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas who can come around them and say, this is who you are. Let me tell you who you really are. If we don't, someone will. There's a whole world out there with all sorts of interesting agendas for the next generation and for us. And they're working very, very hard to name us and to name our little ones. Um, we have a responsibility to be present. We have an opportunity to be present, just to be there. I started to say this a minute ago. So I was with Adam and Rochelle, our Kid City directors, last weekend. And I, um, I said, what, what do we need right now? How are we doing with our volunteers? And Michelle said, we need six more volunteers. In the new year, we're going to start up two more rooms. Something for like the grade school age, and then something for like the, the, the preteens, the middle school students. So quick unveil. The middle school students are going to start meeting up in our butterfly lounge. We've already like tested it for uh, like how loud can the kids be upstairs without it being disruptive. It's going to be sweet. And then we're going to have some grade school stuff happening in the other classroom downstairs. It's going to be amazing. It's a really big vision, but we need more volunteers, people who will step up and say, yeah, I'll help name the kids. I'll be present. I don't know about opening my mouth. I don't, God only knows what will come out. But I'll be present. Teach me. Tell me what to say. Train me. Be present. Be present, be present. Number four, speak identity. You are, you are. You know this taps in to um, a basic discipleship principle. Discipleship is what Jesus said. Um, go and make disciples. Tell the world who I am, what I've done, and command them to obey all that I've taught you. Don't just teach them what I've said. 
teach them to obey what I've said. That's called making disciples. It's telling the world. A big part of discipleship is just calling like identity out of people. So I just met you this, this morning. Let's say, I don't know you. Let's say hypothetically, what was your name again? Nate. Let's say hypothetically you love and follow Jesus. I don't know if you do or don't, and I wouldn't dare put you on the spot. Um, let's say you do. Let's say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm at church. I follow Jesus. Let's say I'm a little bit older than you. I'm a dad. I'm a pastor. And I come along and say, man, let me take you out to lunch. I'm not better than you. Um, I may not necessarily even know more than you, but I don't know, I got some life experience. So let me take you out to lunch. And I think, man, I want to I help this dude grow in his relationship with Jesus. He's probably got all sorts of sin going on, just like the rest of us, struggling with stuff, identity issues, maybe some addiction, just stuff, you know, life stuff. I'm thinking, man, how can I help this dude? What can I say to disciple this guy? You know what I would, you know what I would do? I would be thinking of what identity statements can I speak over this young man? You are a servant of God. Uh, I'm not really. No, 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 no. Let me, I, I insist. Forgive me, but I insist. Let me tell you who you are. You are a servant of God, but you didn't know what I did last night. Well, I don't really care. If you want to confess, that's fine. But I'm here to tell you who you are in Christ because of who he is and what he's done for you. Let me tell you who you are, Hannah. I'm looking at you now. Oh, that's like two Hannahs right in a row. Bam. <laughs> Let me tell you who you are. You are loved. Ah, oh, but I don't feel loved. I'm not really doing that well. Hannah, let me tell you who you are. You are loved. But you don't know what I did this week. I don't care. Go ahead and confess if you want to. I'll pray. God will heal you. Now let me tell you who you are. You are loved. That's discipleship. That's how you disciple someone. Now, there's more to it than just that. But that's like one of the fundamentals right there. Sit, being present, sitting down with someone, looking them in the eye and saying, God, what do you want them to know about who you say they are in Christ? The world will tell you you're not loved. And you're not a servant. You're, you're selfish. You're virtually unlovable. And that's the, that's the word we hear all the time. Of course, the world's much more clever about it. Subliminal. Does that say you name a child? Speak words of identity. Let me tell you who you are. Spend the next 10 years, 20 years, I've been discipling an older man of the Lord. My mission is to convince him that he is the most loved man at Grace City. That's my mission. I even gave him a certificate. You are the most loved man at Grace City. That's identity. That's, that's discipleship. It's not a joke. It's kind of cute, a little funny, but it's actually dead serious. It's discipleship. You are. And you speak words of identity. Um, the flip side of that, this is point number five, how to name a child, listen. AKA, love well. Listen. And when they start saying really weird things and telling you all that they know and it's, you know, all they figured out and you're tempted to be like, you know, that's actually pretty dumb. Let, let me, allow me to help you. Let me give you some advice. Resist. Just listen. Most people, they don't need you to tell them how they should think or what they should try next time. Sometimes, sometimes that can be helpful. But mostly, people just need to be heard. And then after they said all the things that they were terrified of saying out loud, then they look at you to see how you're going to respond. 
that's your cue to keep listening. Be like, wow, thank you so much for entrusting that to me. Well, I must, that must have taken a lot of courage for you to say that out loud. Whew. Tell me more. Tell me more. Or, or explain, cl- clarify that one part. Keep talking and we listen. You know, that's, that's um, I don't know if I'd quite go so far as to call it a sacrament, but it's sacramental. A sacrament is something that's sort of like um, we, we refer to the bread and the juice as a sacrament because when we receive the communion elements, it's a way of receiving grace from God. Not that those are magical elements. When someone's baptized, we call that one of the sacraments. It's something that we do as a means of receiving grace from God. When we listen to another person as an act of love, it's sacramental. When someone feels heard and loved, it's almost a way for a person to receive grace from God. You know who is a really, really good listener? Super good. Jesus. Come on, that wasn't an easy one, guys. Sometimes I just wish he would talk more, but that's another, that's another sermon. Oh, he listens so, so well. Two more. How to name a child. Pray. I uh, referenced Romans 8 a few minutes ago. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Um, while we're waiting in hope, we do well to pray. How do you name a child? Pray for him. Pray for her. Pray a lot. Pray without ceasing. Ask the Lord to take the words that you speak and make them real in their hearts. Ultimately, um, my words will fall short. Here's another discipleship uh, principle. Um, Occasionally meet someone who is so thrilled, so grateful that another person is willing to actually give them their time and like speaking words of life over them. It's like a real gift when someone will like listen well and speak words of encouragement and like take the time to be present. That person who's on the receiving end of that will be tempted to deify you. Thinking that like, oh, finally, someone who like loves me, someone who cares, someone who will listen to me, someone who's like gonna build me up and not just like heap like shame on me and they'll want more and they'll want more and they'll want more and they'll without realizing it will begin to think that you're Jesus that's not going to go well that is not going to go well for them or you they'll end up resenting you for not being God for them so when you're discipling someone when you're naming a child if I can mix my metaphors It's important that in the process they realize at some point, hopefully sooner than later, that you're just there to walk with them closer to Jesus, to to get them closer to the one who can love without, uh, without end. Jesus, he is the deeper well. So we must pray. We must pray that ultimately the people that we are, the kids we're trying to name, meet Jesus, the one who can truly give us what we are looking for. And not to say we just do like a handoff, like, okay, cool, spend some time with you, listen to your sob stories, said some encouraging things, you got Jesus? Okay, cool, peace out. Like, no, no, no. Like, we still gotta be family. We're still the hands and feet of Jesus, and we still, that's why we continue to pray for one another. We continue to to enjoy relationship with one another. We continue to be present as best we can 
And then we pray, knowing that ultimately Jesus is the eternal source. Jesus is the one who has the words of life. And lastly, this, this one, the fancy term for this when it comes to naming the kids is incarnational discipleship. Uh, so Jesus, he didn't just sort of like drop like tracks from heaven. Like, here you go. Here's the gospel. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Pay, pay a special close attention to bullet point number two. You know, it's, no, he didn't do that. He got close. He like got down into the muck and mire and the wonder and the pain of life. And he made friends and he went fishing and he ate food and he partied. And when it comes to kids, you know what incarnational discipleship means? Play. If we want to name our kids, we have to learn how to play with them. Because that's what kids do. They play a lot. You want to you watch me disciple my kids? This isn't like all we do, but a big part of it is I play with my kids. Oh, we play the weirdest games. We have a really small house, so we have to get super creative. We don't really have a backyard, and so we come up with these bizarre games. Well, the kids come up with these, occasionally I'll come up with a game. But we play a lot, and we play, we have fun. And then I get tired, and I get bored, and I think, man, this is so lame. This is, I don't want to do this anymore. And then I realize, but my kids, this is their language. This is their love language. This is how I'm present with them. Yeah, eventually I'll try to insert in, hey, like, can I tell you a little something about identity? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I heard it. You've told me that before. Can I, hey, can I tell you a secret? Can I tell you a secret? And it's the same secret every single time. I love you. Yeah, I know, I know. Okay, let's play some more. GC Friday nights, every two Fridays, we're going to just play. We're going to have fun. We're going to do, like, it's, it's, maybe it'll be serious. Maybe there'll be, like, deep, meaningful moments. We'll do those on the first Friday for sure. But we're going to play. Because if you're going to name the kids next door, you better be willing to pick up that Nerf football that I'm, like, worried is going to break our window. Because that's the thing they're throwing around all the time. That's how we name kids. Can we stand together, please?